2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is the Men of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. The following exhortations are from the book, The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter, published in the year 1656. The duty of a gospel minister, first, to his own welfare. This is your work, according to which, among others, you shall be judged. You can no more be saved without ministerial diligence and fidelity than they or you can be saved without Christian diligence and fidelity. If therefore you care not for others, care at least for yourselves. Oh, what a dreadful thing it is to answer for the neglect of such a charge. And what sin more heinous than the betraying of souls? Does not that threatening make you tremble? If you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. I am afraid, nay, I have no doubt that the day is near when unfaithful ministers will wish that they had never known the charge of souls, but that they had rather been colliers or sweeps or tinkers than pastors of Christ's flock. When besides all the rest of their sins, they shall have the blood of so many souls to answer for. O brethren, our death as well as our people's is at hand, and it is as terrible to an unfaithful pastor as to any. When we see that die we must, and that there is no remedy, that no wit, no learning, nor popular applause can avert the stroke or delay the time, but willing or unwilling, our souls must be gone, and that into a world which we never saw, where our persons and our worldly interests will not be respected. And for a clear conscience that can say, I live not to myself, but to Christ. I spared not my pains, I hid not my talents. I concealed not men's misery, nor the way of their recovery. O oh, sirs, let us therefore take time while we have it, and work. While it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. This is our day, too, and by doing good to others, we must do good to ourselves. If you would prepare for a comfortable death and a great and glorious reward, the harvest is before you. Gird up the loins of your minds and quit yourselves like men that you may end your days with these triumphant words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. If you would be blessed with those that die in the Lord, labor now that you may rest from your labors then. And do such works as you would wish should follow you, and not such as will prove your terror in the review. Application Having found so many and so powerful reasons to move us to this work, I shall now apply them further for our humiliation and exhortation. What cause have we to bleed before the Lord this day that we have neglected so great and could have worked so long? 
Though we have been ministers of the gospel so many years and done so little by personal instruction and conference for the saving of men's souls. If we had but set about this business sooner, who knows how many souls might have been brought to Christ and how much happier our congregations might have been. And why might not we have done it sooner as well as now? I confess there were many impediments in our way, and so there are still. And will be while there is a devil to tempt and a corrupt heart in man to resist the light. But if the greatest impediment had not been in ourselves, even in our own darkness and dullness and indisposedness to duty, and our dividedness and unaptness to close for the work of God, I see not but much might have been done before this. We had the same God to command us and the same miserable objects of compassion and the same liberty from governors as now we have. We have sinned and have no just excuse for our sin and the sin is so great because the duty is so great that we should be afraid of pleading any excuse. The God of mercy forgive us and lay not this or any of our ministerial negligences to our charge. Oh, that we would cover all our unfaithfulness and by the blood of the everlasting covenant wash away our guilt of the blood of souls. That when the chief shepherd shall appear, we may stand before him in peace and may not be condemned for the scattering of his flock. And oh, that we would put up his controversy, which he has against the pastors of his church, and not deal the worse with them for our sakes, nor allow underminers or persecutors to scatter them, as they have suffered his sheep to be scattered, and that he will not care as little for us as we have done for the souls of men, nor think his salvation too good for us as we have thought our labor and sufferings too much for men's salvation." As we have had many days of humiliation for the sins of this land and the judgments that have befallen us, I hope we shall hear that God will more thoroughly humble the ministry and cause them to bewail their own neglects and to set apart some days through the land to that end, that they may not think it enough to lament the sins of others while they overlook their own and that God may not abhor our solemn national humiliations because they are managed by unhumbled guides, and that we may first prevail with him for a pardon for ourselves, that we may be the fitter to beg for the pardon of others. And oh, that we may cast out the dung of our pride, contention, self-seeking, and idleness, lest God should cast our sacrifices as dung in our faces, and she cast us out as the dung of the earth, as of late he has done many others for a warning to us, and that we may presently resolve in concord to mend our pace before we fill a sharper spur than before this we have felt. And now, brethren, what have we to do for the time to come but to deny our lazy flesh and rouse up ourselves to the work before us the harvest is great, the laborers are few, the loiterers and hinderers are many. The souls of men are precious, the misery of sinners is great, and the everlasting misery to which they are near is greater. 
The joys of heaven are inconceivable. The comfort of a faithful minister is not small. The joy of extensive success will be a full reward. To be fellow workers with God and the Spirit is no little honor. To subserve the blood shedding of Christ for men's salvation is not a light thing. To lead on the armies of Christ through the thickest of the enemy. To guide them safely through a dangerous wilderness. To steer the vessel through such storms and rocks and sands and shells and bring it safe to the harbor of rest requires no small skill and diligence. The fields now seem even white to harvest. The preparations that have been made for us are very great. The season of working is more calm than most ages before us have ever seen. We have carelessly loitered too long already. The present time is posting away. While we are trifling, men are dying. Oh, how fast are they passing into another world to awaken us to our duty and to resolve us to speedy and unwearied diligence. Can we think that a man can be too careful and painful under all these motives and engagements? Or can that man be a fit instrument for other men's illumination who is himself so blind? Or for the quickening of others who is himself so senseless? What, sirs, are ye who are men of wisdom, as dull as the common people? And do we need to heap up a multitude of words to persuade you to a known and weighty duty? One would think it should be enough to set you on work, to show a line in the book of God, to prove it to be his will, or to prove to you that the work has a tendency to promote men's salvation. What would one think that the very sight of your miserable neighbors would be motive sufficient to draw out your most compassionate endeavors for their relief? If a cripple does but unlap his sores and show you his disabled limbs, it would move you without words, and will not the case of souls that are near to damnation move you? O happy church, if the physicians were but healed themselves— and if we had not too much of that infidelity and stupidity against which we daily preach in others, and were more soundly persuaded of that of which we persuade others, and were more deeply affected with the wonderful things in which we would affect them. Were there but such a clear and deep impression upon our own souls of these glorious things which we daily preach, Oh, what a change would it make in our sermons and in our private course of life. Oh, what a miserable thing it is to the church and to themselves that men must preach of heaven and hell before they soundly believe that there are such things, or have felt the weight of the doctrines which they preach. It would amaze the sensible man to think what manners we preach and talk of, what it is for the soul to pass out of this flesh and appear before a righteous God and enter upon unchangeable joy or unchangeable torment. Oh, with what amazing thoughts do dying men apprehend these things? How should such manners be preached and discoursed of? Oh, the gravity, the seriousness, the incessant diligence which these things require. I know not what others think of them, but for my part, I am ashamed of my stupidity and wonder at myself that I deal not with my own and other souls as one that looks for the great day of the Lord. 
and that I can have room for almost any other thoughts or words, and that such astonishing manners do not wholly absorb my mind. I marvel how I can preach of them slightly and coldly, and how I can let men alone in their sins, and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they may take it, and whatever pains or trouble it may cost me. I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my conscience smites me that I have been no more serious and fervent in such a case." It accuses me not so much for want of ornaments or elegancy, not for letting fall an unhandsome word, but it asks me, how could you speak of life and death with such a heart? How could you preach of heaven and hell in such a careless, sleepy manner? Do you believe what you say? Are you in earnest or in jest? How can you tell people that sin is such a thing and that so much misery is upon them and before them and you be no more affected with it? Should you not weep over such a people and should not your tears interrupt your words? Should not you cry aloud and show them their transgressions and entreat and beseech them as for life and death? Truly this is appeal that conscience doth ring in my ears. And yet my drowsy soul will not be awakened. Oh, what a thing is a senseless, hardened heart. Oh, Lord, save us from the plague of infidelity and hard-heartedness ourselves. Or else how shall we be fit instruments of saving others from it? Oh, do that on our own souls, which you would do on the souls of others. I am even confounded to think what a difference there is between my sickbed apprehensions and my pulpit apprehensions of the life to come that ever that can seem so light a manner to me now, which seems so great and astonish a manner then. And I know will do so again when death looks me in the face, when yet I dearly know and think of that approaching hour, and yet these forethoughts will not recover such working apprehensions. Oh, sirs, surely if you had all conversed with neighbor death as oft as I have done, and as often received a sentence in yourselves, you would have an unquiet conscience of not a reformed life as to your ministerial diligence and fidelity. And you would have something within you that would frequently ask you such questions as these. Is this all your compassion for lost sinners? Will you do no more to seek and to save them? Is there not such and such? Oh, how many round about you that are yet the visible sons of death. What have you said to them or done for their conversion? Shall they die and be in hell before you will speak to them one serious word to prevent it? Shall they curse you forever that you did no more in time to save them? Such cries of conscience are daily ringing in mine ears though the Lord knows I've done too little to obey them. The God of mercy pardon me and awaken me with the rest of his servants that have been thus sinfully negligent. I confess to my shame that I seldom hear the bell toll for one that is dead, but conscience asks me, what have you done for the saving of that soul before it left the body? There is one more gone to judgment. What did you do to prepare him for judgment? And yet I have been slothful and backward to help them that survive. 
How can you choose when you're laying a corpse in the grave, but think with yourselves, here lies the body, but where is the soul? And what have I done for it before it departed? It was part of my charge. What account can I give of it? Oh, sirs, is it a small matter to you to answer such questions as these? It may seem so now, but the hour is coming when it will not seem so. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and will condemn us much more, even with another kind of condemnation than conscience does. The voice of conscience is a steel voice, and the sentence of conscience is a gentle sentence, in comparison to the voice and the sentence of God. Alas, conscience sees but a very little of our sin and misery in comparison of what God sees. What mountains would these things appear to your souls, which now seem molehills? What beams would these be in your eyes that now seem motes? If you did but see them with a clear light, I dare not say as God sees them. We can easily make shift to plead the cause with conscience and either bribe it or bear its sentence. But God is not so easily dealt with, nor his sentence so easily borne. Wherefore we receiving and preaching a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace in which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is the consuming fire. Exhortations to take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, unless you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. It much hinders our work when other men are all the week long contradicting the poor people in private that which we have been speaking to them from the word of God in public. Because we cannot be at hand to expose their folly, but it will much more hinder your work if you contradict yourselves and if your actions give your tongue the lie. And if you build up an hour or two with your mouths and all the week after pull down with your hands, this is a way to make men think that the word of God is but an idle tale and to make preaching seem no better than prating. He that means as he speaks will surely do as he speaks. One proud, surly, lordly word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit of all that you have been doing. Tell me, brethren, in the fear of God, do you regard the success of your labors or do you not? Do you long to see it upon the souls of your hearers? If you do not, what do you preach for? What do you study for? And what do you call yourselves the ministers of Christ for? But if you do, then surely you cannot find in your heart to mar your work for a thing of naught. What? Do you regard the success of your labors and yet will not part with a little to the poor, nor put up with an injury or a foul word? nor stoop to the meanest, nor forbear your passionate or lordly carriage, no, not for the winning of souls and attaining the end of all your labors. You little value success indeed that will sell it at so cheap a rate, or will not you do so small a manner to attain it, 
It is a palpable error of some ministers who make such a disproportion between their preaching and their living, who study hard to preach exactly and study little or not at all to live exactly. All the week long is little enough to study how to speak two hours, and yet one hour seems too much to study how to live all the week. They are loath to misplace a word in their sermons, or to be guilty of any notable infirmity, and I don't blame them, for the matter is holy and weighty, but they make nothing of misplacing affections, words, and actions in the course of their lives. Oh, how curiously have I heard some men preach, and how carelessly have I seen them live. They have been so accurate as to the preparation of their sermons, that seldom preaching seemed to them a virtue, that their language might be the more polite and all the rhetorical writers they could meet with were pressed to serve them for the adorning of their style. They were so nice in hearing others that no man pleased them that spoke as he thought, or that drowned not affections or dull not or distempered not the heart by the predominant strains of a fantastic wit. And yet when it came to manner of practice, and they were once out of church, how incurious were the men and how little did they regard what they said or did, so it were not so palpably gross as dishonor them. They that preach precisely would not live precisely. What a difference was there between their pulpit speeches and their familiar discourse. Lastly, take heed to yourselves that you want not the qualifications necessary for your work. He must not be himself a babe in knowledge that will teach men all those mysterious things which must be known in order to his salvation. Oh, what qualifications are necessary for a man who has such a charge upon him as we have? How many difficulties and divinity to be solved, and these also about the fundamental principles of religion? How many obscure texts of scripture to be expounded, and how many duties to be performed? in which ourselves and others may miscarry if in the matter and manner and in we be not well informed. How many sins to be avoided which without understanding and foresight cannot be done? What a number of sly and subtle temptations must we open to our people's eyes that they may escape them? How many weighty and yet intricate cases of conscience have we almost daily to resolve? And can so much work and such work as this be done by raw, unqualified men? Oh, what strongholds have we to batter and how many of them? What subtle and obstinate resistance must we expect from every heart we deal with? Prejudice is so blocked up our way that we can scarcely procure a patient hearing, and we cannot make a breach in their groundless hopes and carnal peace, but they have twenty shifts and seeming reasons to make it up again and twenty enemies that are seeming friends are ready to help them. We dispute not with them upon equal terms. We have children to reason with that cannot understand us. We have distracted men and spirituals to argue with that will ball us down with raging nonsense. We have willful, unreasonable people to deal with who, when they are silenced, are never the more convinced and who, when they can give you no reason, will give you their resolution. We dispute the case against men's wills and passions as much as against their understandings, and these have neither reason nor ears. Their best arguments are, I will not believe you, nor all the preachers in the world in such things. 
I will not change my mind or life, and I will not leave my sins. I will never be so precise, come of it what will. We have not one but multitudes of raging passions and contradicting enemies to dispute against at once. Whenever we go about the conversion of a sinner, as if a man were to dispute an affair or a tumult, or in the midst of a crowd of violent scolds, what equal killing and what success could here be expected? Yet such is our work, and it is a work that must be done. O oh, brethren, what men should we be in skill, resolution, and unwearied diligence who have all this to do? Did Paul cry out, Who is sufficient for these things? And shall we be proud or careless or lazy as if we were sufficient? As Peter says to every Christian in consideration of our great approaching change, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So may I say to every minister, seeing all these things lie upon our hands, what manner of persons ought we to be in all holy endeavors and resolutions for our work? This is not a burden for the shoulders of a child. What skill does every part of our work require, and of how much moment is every part? To preach a sermon, I think, is not the hardest part, and yet what skill is necessary to make the truth plain, to convince the hearers, to let irresistible light into their consciences and keep it there, and drive all home, to screw the truth into their minds and work Christ into their affections, to meet every objection and clearly to resolve it, to drive sinners to a stand and make them see that there is no hope, but they must unavoidably either be converted or condemned, and to do all this as regards language and manner, as beseems our work, and yet as is most suitable to the capacities of our hearers. This and a great deal more that should be done in every sermon must surely require a great deal of holy skill. So great a God whose message we deliver should be honored by our delivery of it. It is a lamentable case, and in a message from the God of heaven, of everlasting moment to the souls of men, we should behave ourselves so weakly, so unhandsomely, so imprudently or slightly that the whole business should miscarry in our hands, and God should be dishonored and his work disgraced, and sinners rather hardened than converted, and all this through our weakness or neglect. How often have carnal hearers gone home jeering at the palpable and dishonorable failings of the preacher? How many sleep under us because our hearts and our tongues are sleepy, and we don't bring with us much skill as to awaken them? Moreover, what skill is necessary to defend the truth against gainsayers, to deal with disputing cavillers according to their several modes and case? And if we fail through weakness, how will they exult over us? Yet that is the smallest matter. But who knows how many weak ones may by this be perverted to their own undoing and to the trouble of the church. What skill is necessary to deal in private with one poor ignorant soul for his conversion? O oh, brethren, do you not shrink and tremble under the sense of all this work? Will a common measure of holy skill and ability of prudence and other qualifications serve for such a task as this? I know necessity may cause a church to tolerate the weak, 
But woe to us if we tolerate and indulge our own weakness. Do not reason and conscience tell you that if you dare venture on so high a work as this, you should spare no pains to be qualified for the performance of it? It is now and then an idle snatch or taste of studies that will serve to make an able and sound divine. I know that laziness has learned to allege the vanity of all our studies, and how entirely the Spirit must qualify us for, and assist us in our work, as if God commanded us the use of means and then warranted us to neglect them, as if it were his way to cause us to thrive in a course of idleness, and to bring us to knowledge by dreams when we are asleep, or to take us up into heaven and show us his counsels while we think of no such matter, but are idling away our time on earth. Oh, that men should dare by their laziness to quench the spirit, and then pretend the spirit for the doing of it. Oh, outrageous, shameful, and unnatural deed! God has required us that we be not slothful in business, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Such we must provoke our hearers to be, and such we must be ourselves. Oh, therefore, brethren, lose no time. Study and pray and confer and practice, for in these four ways your abilities must be increased. Take heed to yourselves, lest you are weak through your own negligence, and lest you mar the work of God by your weakness. Richard Baxter